Carolyn, for those that don't know you. Um, I'm here to read the sermon reading. It's Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 32. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if the right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. <laughs> I know what you're thinking. Better me than you. <laughs> uh, today we are talking primarily about adultery, uh, but in the context of adultery we're going to be talking about lust and divorce. And so as we reflect on this passage, I want to acknowledge that this is going to be confronting, uh, because what should be our safest, most joyful, intimate relationship often isn't. And so for some, uh, this passage will be a painful reminder of the betrayal you've experienced. Uh, for some, it might evoke uh, feelings of guilt and shame. Uh, others might feel angry and judged. And for some, uh, we cannot undo what we have done, but it may well be the first time you come to a point of recognising that you've done the wrong thing uh, and bringing you to a point of repenting before God, uh, but also perhaps also needing to seek forgiveness from someone else. So as we look at this passage, uh, let me pray that God might guide us. Dear Lord, as we come to your word now, May my words honour you, that we might understand your will for marriage more clearly. Amen. So often we're told in life that our purpose is simply to be happy, and we will be happy when we are being true to ourselves. Uh, and that life perspective uh, plays out in our relationships, and it often plays out in our marriages, but not in a good way. Because marriage can be tough, and so sometimes it can just seem a whole lot easier to get out <coughs> rather than to stay in. Uh, Jesus said earlier in this sermon, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. So as Christians, our purpose, our deep longing, is to be the people that God has created us to be. So we should desire righteousness even more than we desire happiness. And that includes how we approach marriage. But as we seek righteousness, what we discover is that it also fills. It fills our confidence. We know who we are as we seek to live for Christ. It fills our security. Uh, we no longer fear death because we have a secure Future. And it fills our relationships because it shows us what it looks like to build up rather than to tear down. But it also means that we reject the unrighteousness that empties. 
And so last week we reject murder, uh, which is probably less contentious, but we also reject the anger that sits behind murder. And now from our passage today, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. So way back in the Old Testament, God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, and these Ten Commandments serve as a foundation for the rest of the Old Testament law. And number seven was simply, you shall not commit adultery. And in the book of Leviticus, God then declares the punishment for adultery. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbour, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. So adultery is serious, and it's defined as a married person having a sexual encounter with someone who is not their husband or wife. And so it can be a fleeting encounter, it could be a prostitute, it could be an ongoing affair, it can include actual sex, uh, but anything that is sexual that the other person, husband or wife, would see and feel was a betrayal of their relationship. So if the husband is caught passionately kissing another woman, then that would be adultery. So, but then Jesus ups the ante. Uh, He goes from the action of adultery to the attitude. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so it's no longer just an action. It cuts to what we are thinking, what we are feeling, and our attitudes. And so now it's not just an action, it's a desire for a sexual encounter with someone who's not our husband or wife. And again, it's not whether it's realistic or achievable or even probable, it's about our desire and our attitude and how we play with our attraction. And if there's any doubt about the seriousness of lust, then we need to hear what Jesus has to say next. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. Now, at this point, I want to introduce another word for the day, uh, which is hyperbole. Okay, it's similar but different to exaggeration. So exaggeration is when I go, the fish was this big, And I believe the fish was this big, but really the fish was more, you know, this big. Okay, But hyperbole is an exaggeration where we know that we are exaggerating to make a point. So when my wife Sarah says a thousand times, you actually probably, you know, step that up a bit. My wife, you know, has told me a million times uh, to put away the milk then she knows she hasn't told me a million times, a thousand's a bit more touch and go. (laughs) But she's told me a million times to put away. She knows she's not being literal, but she's making a point that I do need to put away the milk and that she is vexed. Uh, If we took what Jesus was saying literally here, then we would chop off everything that causes us to sin, which means we would all be, you know, deaf, blind and mute. And it still wouldn't solve the problem because the real problem is actually the depth of our heart and the sinfulness of our heart. Uh, As someone once said, the heart desires and the mind justifies and the will concedes. So we need God's spirit uh, to transform our heart, but we also need to recognise the seriousness of our sin and to flee it like our life depends on it. 
And so Jesus is using this hyperbole to make a point. But I think the temptation for us is, because we recognise it as hyperbole, we almost dismiss it as so extreme that we stop listening, uh, rather than hearing the sense of urgency. And Jesus certainly isn't speaking in hyperbole when he talks about the consequences. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. We are saved by grace, and when we sin and genuinely repent, then God forgives. And we know he forgives because he's paid the price for our sin on the cross. Uh, But if we come to sin expecting that we will be forgiven, or if we feel that we are entitled to forgiveness, uh, then we need to hear this warning from Jesus, uh, that we will be held accountable for our sin, and if we leave our sin unaddressed, then it will send us to hell. Uh, It's like gangrene. It won't kill you overnight, but if you don't treat it, it will kill you. And just to be painfully clear, uh, the writer of Hebrews puts it like this. If we deliberately keep us on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment. So sin is life and death serious. I suspect as generations go, we feel that, and, and younger generation working backwards, we feel that less powerfully than perhaps previous generations. We've kind of got used to the idea of sin being just an acceptable part of life. Uh, but we need to hear it here. Our sin is serious, our lust is serious. Uh, so what are some things that we can practically do uh, to help us deal with this struggle of lust? And here's, I think, four things that are helpful. I'm sure there's plenty of others. But the first is we need to fix our eyes on Christ. You know, whatever other practical things we want to talk about, we need to start by being clear about who we are before God. We follow, we're committed to following Jesus as our Lord and Saviour. If our eyes are fixed on Christ, then they won't be fixed on other things. You know, like the Greek Adonis at the gym or something like that. <laughs> uh, number two, uh, we need to pray for God's help because even though we are given a new nature and we have the Holy Spirit, we do still feel and experience the residual impact of sin. And so we need to pray that God will help us to say yes to the good and to say no to the bad. And number three, it is much easier to say no if you have never said yes. If you've never seen pornography, if you've never been in a sexualized, romantic relationship, then some of those temptations just don't have the same power compared to those who have experienced those things. So for those who haven't been there, can I really encourage you and implore you, don't start, because it is a little bit like going down a stream. When you start in a stream, you know, it's soft and gentle, but the further you go, particularly as you head towards a waterfall, it gets faster and faster and it's harder to swim against. And I think that's the same with sin. And then number four, a similar idea, we need to recognise that things have a way of escalating. And so the more we feed the lion, the more the lion wants to consume. Uh, But equally and more positively, uh, the more we starve the lion, the less powerful it becomes. And so let's be conscious about who we spend time with at work and how we connect with our colleagues or our neighbours. Let's be conscious of our words and our banter and our physical touch. Uh, Because what can start out as a harmless desire for connection 
uh, can become a desire to be desired, and that has a way of becoming lust and lust adultery. And that somewhat painfully brings us to the question of divorce. I think on a society level, there is a consensus that is adultery, that adultery is wrong. We might still do it, but we think it's wrong. Uh, but I don't think there's the same consensus around divorce. Uh, vows and the whole sickness, health, richer, poorer thing are, are meant sincerely in the moment uh, and on the day, but often become more about statements of intent rather than deep commitments, and particularly once we put that under pressure. And actually, things weren't any better, and perhaps even worse, in the time of Jesus. So in Jewish culture, only men could initiate divorce, and even though God's intention was for two to become one in a lifelong committed relationship, uh, people always liked to find a loophole, uh, and they found it in Deuteronomy 24. And so the passage is about remarriage rather than divorce, but it establishes two grounds for divorce. Uh, the first is something indecent, uh, which was commonly read to mean something sexually indecent. Uh, the second reason is even more broad, and it was simply if the husband hates the wife, then he can divorce her. So if he hates her cooking, uh, then that was enough uh, to call it quits. Uh, the only saving grace was that a man could provide a certificate of divorce, and that certificate then allowed that woman to remarry without shame. So when Jesus is speaking about divorce, it's in the context of two dominant views. Uh, divorce was only acceptable uh, if it involved sexual unfaithfulness, or divorce was acceptable for any reason. And Jesus says, it's been, it has been said, Anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So Jesus is not saying something completely unique here. Uh, he's saying that we must not, you know, when he says, do not divorce except for sexual immorality as a, uh, as a permission, what is controversial here is how he associates divorce with adultery, because adultery was a much bigger deal than divorce. Uh, so let me see if I can put the logic of this passage together uh, really succinctly. Uh, so if marriage is about two people becoming one, and the defining act of that union is sex, then that oneness is broken when there is sexual infidelity. Uh, but Jesus is saying that oneness is not broken by divorce alone and only becomes broken when one of those, the ex-husband or the ex-wife, then remarries and has sex with that person. And when that happens, it becomes adultery. So we've just read lust is included in, adult in adultery and now we have, endure we have divorce in that same space. But this is where it gets complicated. Uh, the NIV says it makes her the victim of adultery. Uh, the older NIV, a more literal translation, says makes her commit adultery. And that's quite a different emphasis in those words. So she is a victim in the sense that she is forced to commit adultery because women in the first century, when it came to uh, marriage, had very limited options. So if they were divorced, they could do one of two things. They could stay unmarried, 
And if they did that, they were financially and socially destitute, uh, or they could remarry. And Jesus is saying here the wife will inevitably remarry and have sex and therefore commit adultery because divorce alone didn't break that oneness. It was sex. Uh, But here Jesus is not condemning the woman. He's condemning the divorcing husband because he is the one who is putting her in the adulterous position. So he is guilty of her adultery and he is guilty of the adultery of the man who remarries her. So the moral isn't that she shouldn't remarry. The moral is that we should not divorce. Now, that's not universally held by every uh, Christian. Some people are more conservative uh, than I am uh, with that. Some people say you can never remarry if you've been divorced. Uh, Others are a little broader than that. But I think as we read that passage, as we read the whole context... Uh, that, that that's how that's my view as I come to read that. And it's not an uncommon view. What this passage doesn't talk, talk about is abuse in marriage. Uh, but let me say a few brief comments. Firstly, you should feel safe in your marriage. And if you don't feel safe, then I encourage you to seek help. Uh, so on the lower end of the spectrum, that might be seeking counselling uh, to talk through the issues you're facing. But it also might mean, uh, in more serious situations, separating. And I think 1 Corinthians 7 provides a helpful framework. I'm going to look at this very briefly, but hopefully enough to give a frame. Uh, To the married I give this command, not I but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. Her husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest I say this, I am not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And then a few verses later, but if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. So if you do separate, uh, there is a responsibility to work towards reconciliation. Uh, But even then, it cannot simply be uh, re-entering into an abusive situation with this promise that the other person will change. Uh, And in the end, a person's behaviour might be so destructive and the damage so profound that even pursuing reconciliation might not be possible. And if there is no reasonable possibility for reconciliation, and the other party is uh, unwilling to live in a relationship that is loving and mutually respectful, then they should be treated as a non-believer and their actions should be viewed as an abandonment of their marriage, and in which case uh, that person would be free to divorce and remarry. And now that's a very brief comment on an exceptionally complicated issue. Happy to talk about it uh, more if that would be helpful. But all the way through this passage, Jesus expressed his point in the negative. Uh, don't lust, don't divorce, don't commit adultery, because these things are everything that hungering and thirsting for righteousness is not. Uh, they empty and we want to be people who are filled. So, again, what are some practical things we can do to build up on our marriages? So we honour God, but also to protect one another from sin. So again, here's four things, and I'm sure there's others we could add. But the first one is love wisely. For those who are not married, choose wisely who you are going to marry, because it is a lifelong commitment. 
And so choose someone who's going to build you up and build you up in your love for Christ. Uh, sometimes uh, when we're dating, uh, we get a little besotted uh, and we, we don't really you know, quite see anything but the other person. And so perhaps as a, a sub-point to that, seek wise counsel of those who love you and perhaps can give you some perspective. Uh, number two, uh, love sacrificially. Uh, part of that is stop focusing on what is natural to us, which is how is the other person going to fulfill my needs and what I want. And we need to start focusing on well, how do I fulfill their needs and how do I make them feel loved. Uh, and that means we're going to need to be generous, but we also need to be prepared that it doesn't always result in that same reciprocal generosity back. And as Christians, we're called to love even when we don't feel we're getting the same back. I think number three, love constantly. Uh, sometimes we think that showing love is about the big gestures. So, you know, we institute things like date night. Or right, let's be honest, uh, for those who've been married for date night for a while, it does sort of, you know, gravitate back towards watching TV and your own boots with tight takeaway. <laughs> okay, we, we, you know, we, we're, we're truly honest. All right. But, you know, we, we, there's other romantic gestures. You know, we can do the romantic dinner. We can do the romantic weekend away. We can do something you know, special for their birthday. All of those things are wonderful things to do. Uh, I want to encourage all of those things, including Thai takeaway. <laughs> but we shouldn't just go for the big gestures. Uh, I think a, a healthy marriage is built on a thousand little things that we do each day. You know, it's those simple expressions of affection and words that build up and that communicate our love but also desire. And I think we need to create space for conversation where we're actually listening to one another rather than talking in amongst all the, all the distractions, which I think can be hard, obviously, when the kids are younger. It gets a little bit easier as the, the kids move out and they don't drown in the bath. But, but how do we create time uh, to actually communicate. For Sarah and I, uh, one of our best forms of communication is we like to walk and talk. Uh, that works for us. So we don't sit on the couch and have cups of tea, uh, because tea's awful. Uh, <laughs> but it's just not how we sit and communicate. Uh, but, but we communicate by walking and talking, and that's good for us. And then last one in this sort of space, highly underrated, but I do think valuable, is commit to going to bed together at the same time. Which, number four, segues nicely into the very awkward love sexually. You know, we've talked all about the, the negative expressions of sexual desire, uh, but sex is good. Uh, in fact, sex is so good and so bonding and so intimate that God has made it exclusively for marriage. And so let's be generous sexually. And like loving sacrificially, it works best when the husband looks first to how he can love his wife in the way that she wants to be loved, and equally a wife looks first to how she can love her husband in a way he likes to be loved. And I think that's enough awkwardness for one or so many. But as I finish, I hope the point is clear. Uh, as we hunger and thirst for righteousness, let's flee all those things that are entangling and destroying, the lust, the adultery and divorce, and let's nurture the good. Uh, because marriage is a gift from God and it is precious. So let me pray that we might do that. Let me pray. Dear Lord, as we have reflected on your word now, I pray that we might hunger and thirst for righteousness in our relationships. Give us wisdom and self-control and an enduring love for one another that we might honour you in our marriages.
Amen.